Oh, bless the Lord. Well, it's always good to be here, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to just sit and enjoy worship today. Have you ever had those moments in your life where you just kind of wish that worship would go on and on and on? Well, I got a good word for you. When we get to heaven, guess what? Worship goes on and on and on, and God is worthy to receive all of that. So how about we start off with a little audience participation time, all right? If I said to you, John 3.16, without looking at your Bible, how many of you know John 3.16? Almost every hand up, amen? Now, Luke 9.23. Luke 9.23 is the text I'm going to be spending my time on this morning and taking your time to take you along with me. But Luke 9.23, I think, is the best single verse in the New Testament about what the life of a disciple looks like. It says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Now, before we get to that verse, though, there's some background information you need to know. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 5, Luke 5. And I'm, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, and I, I was in the car driving over this morning and realized that I don't have the New Living Translation in my car. I usually teach out of the New American Standard, so I have my phone, and I'm going to be reading it off my phone. If you would like to see pictures of my grandchildren after the service, we, we could arrange for that too. Luke 5, 27 through 32. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink? Now, the, the New Living Translation is pretty graphic in this last. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Now, why are we starting there? Why not just go into Luke 9 and we'll spend 35, 40 minutes taking a look at just one verse? Because I want you to understand something. In the Gospel of Luke, written by 
Luke. Notice what he calls Matthew. You would know him more commonly as Matthew. Amen? Matthew chapter 9 gives the story in Matthew's own gospel of when Jesus came by the tax collector's booth one day and said to him those immortal words, follow me and become my disciple. But why would Matthew not use his given name, Levi, in his own gospel? And why here does Luke refer to him as Levi? Let me give you a little background. The name Levi obviously is short for Levite or Levitical, one being the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, Levite being a member of the tribe of Levi. It would seem that when you gave your child that name, your anticipation as the parent would be that your child would follow in your footsteps and would become a what? Would become a rabbi or a priest. And Levi, Matthew, did anything but that. Amen. Became one of the most disreputable and despised people in his hometown. Because he was in league with the Romans and he was a tax gatherer. He doesn't even use his given name here. Because he knows that his family has disfellowshipped him. They have nothing to do with him because of what he does professionally. And I want to set the stage for you there because when you, when you go down the Luke 5 passage, did you notice who he invites to dinner? Does he invite nice people like you and I? Well, let's just leave it like this. Does he invite nice people like Grandma Mossholder? <laughs> right? He doesn't. He invites the people that he associated with. Amen? So who does he invite? Other scum. Right? The tax gatherers, the prostitutes, those who were ceremonially undefiled, who could not go to synagogue, who could not worship collectively. He opens up his house because he wants them to hear about Jesus from Jesus. So let's take a look at this in verses 28 and 29. Of today's text. In verse 28 and verse 29, we read this. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. Watch now. So Levi got up, left what? Everything and followed him. Do you notice the immediate decisive action there? It's not like he's had to think about it. Now, it is possible that Levi had heard Jesus teach. It is possible that he had been in a place where he had even heard about some of the things that Jesus was doing. But I want you to notice that when Jesus comes and gives him an invitation to become a disciple, to become a follower, he gets up and he immediately follows and he leaves what? everything behind. Now, you remember the story of the rich young ruler, amen, who was unwilling to give away some of his funds or much of his, his money, if you will, because God knew that that was what had a hold on his heart. Because he's the one that came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? 
And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And then he lists the second part of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Do not steal. Do not covet. And the young man looks at him and says, what? All these things I've, I've kept since my childhood. And Jesus, it says that Jesus looked on him and felt compassion for him and said, then do this one thing. Go sell everything that you have. Give it away. And come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. How many, how many places in Scripture do you think that Jesus asks anybody to give everything up and follow him? One. Guess who it was? The rich young ruler. One person. So there are, there are times when people, maybe this is you. Maybe when you became a Christian, you thought that when you became a Christian, you had to give up everything to follow Jesus. And gradually and little bit by little bit, some of us have, amen? Behavioral traits, attitudes, things of that nature. But the... the only single person that Jesus ever spoke to and said, I want you to leave it all behind and come follow me was the rich young ruler because he knew what had had his heart. Levi gets up and walks away from it. He immediately gets up and says, I'm going to follow Jesus. And then as an interesting sidelight to his following Jesus, he opens up his home and invites all his friends to come and listen to Jesus because he too wanted them to hear about Jesus from the words of Jesus. Now, can I just give you a little needed break here? Not that you need to go out and get another chocolate donut, although I did have my, my standard chocolate donut when I came today and whoever, whoever gets the chocolate donuts when they come to church on Sunday, if you're not saved now, I just conferred salvation on you. Just, <laughs> just kidding. We have a responsibility when we come to know Jesus to start talking to other people about how we've come to know Jesus. That is not incumbent upon Tim and Kelly and Kaylin and the rest of the pastoral team here. It's not, it's not something I do when I was a lead pastor and part of a church staff for over 40 years. It wasn't responsibility of the pastoral team alone to talk to people about Jesus because I don't go to your work spots. I don't go to your classrooms. I don't live in your neighborhoods. I don't know your extended families. But you have a responsibility just like Levi, just like Matthew, when you come to a place of faith and decision and trust in Jesus to start talking about him. You with me? All right, that's background. Let's go to Luke 9. Luke 9. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. I want you to find, if you will, Verse 23 for me. This is a, an interesting chapter, by the way. You read this chapter, the feeding of the 5,000 is in this chapter. 
You also have Peter's confession of Jesus as being the Messiah here in this chapter. It seems like Jesus is talking to his disciples, and then as we begin to look in verse 23, he turns and he speaks directly to the crowd. In other words, he tells the disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, but I will be raised up from the dead. He tells the disciples that, but then he turns and he looks at the crowd and he says these words to them. If anyone of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost or destroyed? I love the, the New American Standard where it says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit or lose his soul? I may have shared this with some of you before, but... There was, a, there was an excavation done at an archaeological site, and they, they uncovered the tomb of some reigning monarch who had passed away and had been buried, as, as many did in, in that time, in, in splendor. And as they opened up the tomb of this, this monarch, they opened up the tomb to find that his skeletal finger was pointed at an open scripture, an open scripture, and guess what scripture it was? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? That's what he was musing on, perhaps, as he died. Or perhaps that's what he left by way of instructions. I want my body to be placed in this tomb, but I want my finger put on that text as a message to the, the ones who would ultimately open up his tomb and find him. Maybe that's, that was his last word. But the good word for us today is, what does it profit us to have everything? Now, I don't get to edit the tape of this service, so I'm going to ask your forgiveness in advance for my next statement. Amen? Do, do you care enough about me to give me forgiveness before you even hear about what I'm going to say? How many of you watched the Super Bowl? All right, put your hands down. How many of you got tired of the cameras? You see, somebody just chuckled because they know where I'm going with this. How many of you got tired of the cameras moving up to the Taylor Swift suite so we could see Taylor Swift root for her boyfriend while his brother was in the suite with them and whoever all those other people were. Can I tell you, I did not watch the Super Bowl game to watch Taylor Swift. But you know why she gets so much attention? Because she's a celebrity. And America's in love with celebrities. I just hope the church loves Jesus as much as America loves celebrities. If anyone chooses to come after me, 
Guess what anyone means? This is profound, right? I studied all week for this. Pastor Gary, what does the word anyone mean? And I think he might be right. In the book of Acts, it says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? But the Bible, the Bible is very quick to follow up belief with following. Because John 3.16 is about belief. Amen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have eternal or everlasting life, right? Now, the word believe there is to have confidence in and to trust. But in, unfortunately, if I step on toes this morning, that's all right. You can run me out of town a little bit later. Unfortunately, what we see in America's church now is this. Belief becomes intellectual acceptance. Belief is about believing intellectually that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not necessarily followed up with what is intended for it to follow up, amen, as a life of what? Discipleship. Belief is not following. A lot of people believe, amen? But they've never made the steps toward following Jesus in the life of a disciple. Yet it's open to everyone. Specifically Luke 9, 23, Jesus has now told the disciples in verses 18, 19, and 20, look, I'm going to die. You need to be prepared for that. But then he turns his gaze to the surrounding crowd. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. The invitation is there for what? All who call upon the name of the Lord who have been what? Saved. Now let's start by taking a look at this clause by clause. If anyone wants to come after me. Now let's stop there for a second. If you were living in the time of Jesus... There were lots of rabbis who had disciples, but here's the difference. Most of the rabbis who were living in the time of Jesus, they selected their followers. Do you, how many of you remember when you went to college that you had to fill out an application? How many of you remember that? How many of you remember applying for a college that you had to fill out, if you will, a resume. You had to fill out all the accomplishments that you did in high school, and, and you were hopeful you would get into the college of your choice. Amen? You get the picture? That's what you had to do to a rabbi in that day. You had to fill out your resume because God forbid that the person who would follow me as one of my students would not be worthy. You see the difference between Jesus and the rabbis of his day? Jesus would go and say, follow me. You would have to go to the rabbi and ask the question, may I come and attach myself to you? Jesus wants everybody. 
Everybody. And by the way, that first closet says this, if anyone would come after me. Okay, so we're not going to ask for audience participation time now, but we are going to ask this question. How, how many of you today remember when you fell in love? Right? How many of you remember the crazy things you did when you fell in love? Right? Because you, you were in love. And in the words of Elvis Presley, that great saint of, of old, <laughs> you were just all shook up. <laughs> right? So when I fell in love with my wife, boy, you know, I'd take her flowers and buy her candy. And anytime I could be around her, I would want to be around her. We worked together for the city of Long Beach. We went to the same undergraduate school. It just seemed like my whole world revolved around courting that one woman. Can I get a witness? Right? And, of course, now 47 years into marriage, the only time I take flowers home, Cindy greets me at the door and said, who died? <laughs> There's a story behind that, and I'm not going to share it with you. But the reality is, the word come after me, or the phrase come after me, that's what that means in that culture. It means to develop a passionate love for the one that you follow. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it. Do you love Jesus more today than you did when you first met him? Because that's what our relationship as a disciple should look like. Amen? That I am desperately in love with Jesus. Let me read you something that came from the life of a missionary. This is somewhat of a lengthy story, but you'll get the point about what it means to come after in a relentless romantic pursuit of Jesus. Several years ago, I heard the testimony of an elderly missionary who was returning from the foreign field to the United States to live out the days he had left with his married daughter in the Midwest. Upon arriving in the California coast, he boarded a bus to begin his trip across the country. The first night, the bus stopped in Las Vegas. He had been out of the United States for more than 30 years. He had never been to Las Vegas. He checked into a hotel and took a walk down the strip. Although it was close to midnight, it looked like midday because of all the lights. As he walked down the strip, he heard the loud music, saw the amazing hotels, and even went to a car show where he saw the world's finest automobiles. He saw the games being played in the machines and the funds being played in the casinos. He heard the money coming out of the slot machines. He saw the marquees announcing the amazing entertainers. He saw the drink specials announced and the amazing food advertised in the restaurants. Eventually, he went back to his room in the high-rise hotel where he was staying he entered the room but didn't turn on the light. He walked across the room and opened the curtains, and in the quietness of the room, he got on his knees in front of the window, looked down at the Vegas Strip, then into the more impressive lights of the heavens, and prayed this prayer. God, I thank you that tonight I haven't seen anything I want more than you.
Amen? That is the relentless pursuit. The romantic, relentless pursuit of Jesus as a disciple. The second one is this. Jesus said, if you want to come and follow after me, you have to learn to deny yourself. Oh, that works well in our culture, doesn't it? If I said this slogan to you, tell me who it comes from. Have it your way. Burger King. You deserve a break today. McDonald's. Right? It keeps going and going and going. The Energizer Bunny. You know how many things that we sell in America have a slogan? Right? There's a slogan, like Nike has that little, what do you call that thing? A swoosh, right? And everybody knows it's the Nike slogan or the Nike logo, right? Do you know what Jesus' logo would be? Come and die. <laughs> and you think, I'm kidding. Wait till we get to the next clause. That's what he says. Deny yourself. You remember in Matthew 13, if you've been going through 260 the last two years, if you have not yet attached yourself to a group, I wholeheartedly would encourage you to do that. But in Matthew 13, there are seven parables about the kingdom of God. And one of them is very brief. I think it's just verse 44. And it says that a man found a field. And in that field was buried a treasure. And he found the treasure. And he went off and sold everything he had to do what? to buy the field because it was of an inestimable wealth. Nothing in life was worth more than that. That is exactly the kind of life that a disciple is to have, where nothing is worth more than Jesus. When I was a little boy, we used to sing a hymn in the church my mom and dad attended, and it was entitled, All That Thrills My Soul Is Jesus. He is more than life to me. But self-denial, let's talk about that. What is self-denial? It's saying no to yourself and saying yes to Jesus. It's saying no to the things that you want for yourself that Jesus may be likely to give to you, but in a time yet to be determined or in a way that will bring him great glory. Self-denial is simply, if you will, not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking about yourself at all. Because you're so passionately concerned with following after Jesus, the only thing you think about is what's going to please my Savior. What's going to be bringing glory to the one who gave his life for me. Self-denial is a daily surrender. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16 where Paul says, I die daily. What is he saying? He's, he's saying very frankly there, I'm dying daily to the power of sin. But he also, when he says, I die daily, he's dying to the idea that he's going to promote himself at the expense of the promotion of the kingdom of God. 
Self-denial is about more about my responsibilities than my rights. May I repeat that? Self-denial is me being more concerned about embracing the responsibilities I have in my life as a follower of Jesus than demanding my rights. Now, I am 68 years old, which tells you I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And it seemed like everybody was protesting about something. Can I get a witness? In the 60s and the 70s. Everybody had a cause. Everybody was out in the streets shouting whatever their, their shout would be. And it struck me, even at that young of an age, that a lot of these people are talking about their rights, but the simple responsibilities of being a good citizen seems to be lost on them. Of showing kindness seems to be lost on them. Of being tolerant of the fact that there are people who are going to be different than you and have different ideas than you do. Self-denial is simply... Love that's selfless and sacrificial. It looks to others more than it looks to itself. Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than you regard yourself. At the end of the day, though, self-denial, my friends, is you saying yes to God and no to yourself. So when God calls you and asks you to do something that's challenging, a life of discipleship leaps to the forefront and says, I will do that, Jesus, because that is what you have asked of me, as difficult as it may be. If I, if I told you earlier, which I did, that if Jesus had a slogan, would it be born to die or come and die? Look at the third clause here. It's a passionate pursuit of Jesus. It's a life of self-denial. And it's a life of cross-bearing. Do you, do you think that the people who heard Jesus talking understood what he was talking about? They lived in Rome. They lived in the province of the, of the then greatest empire in the world. And let me just tell you something about the Romans. The Romans invented crucifixion. They could, have, they could have taken out their enemies and those that they, they thought were somehow a threat to their power. They could have taken them out in a number of ways. But do you know why they invented crucifixion? And do you know why it was so, so successful in keeping the masses down? Because you couldn't cross a hill in Rome without seeing someone on a cross. There were, I'm, I'm grateful for a story and I read this week getting ready for today. He said at one point, on one day, the Romans could have as many as 2,000 people on a cross. Now that, my friends, is nothing other than the attempt to strike fear in the hearts of people. If Satan, and he is, the original terrorist. The Roman government took terrorism in another direction whatsoever when they invented crucifixion. 
because it was a, it was a crucifixion was a was a sign of humiliation. You know, we clean up the crucifixion, amen? We clean up the story in our culture. As horrific as it is, were you aware of the fact that when people were crucified, all their clothes were taken off of them and they were exposed in their nakedness to all those who would sit at the bottom of the cross and look? It was a sign of humiliation. It was a sign of suffering. Never, never forget this, people. The crucifixion victims lived two or three days. They ultimately typically died one of two ways. They either died as, a, as they just simply could no longer breathe. They could not pull themselves up on the cross. They were asphyxiated. Or the birds of the air came and began to take out chunks of their flesh. Two to three days. And our Savior Six hours on what we call Good Friday, amen. But it was, a, it was a sign of humiliation, and it was a sign of suffering. You remember what Jesus went through before he even had to pick up his cross, amen? Beaten beyond recognition, and then called upon to carry his own cross for some of the way down the road of suffering. It was not only a sign of humiliation. It was not only a sign of, of suffering, but ultimately, dear ones, you know what it was. It was a sign of death. No one, no one ever got down off of a cross. There's no recorded victim of crucifixion who ever lived. And that's what Jesus calls us to. And do you, do you understand why revival tarries in America? Because this kind of message, you hear these messages all the time from, from Tim and Kelly and Kaylin, and I understand Kaylin knocked it out of the ballpark last week. I understand she was great. But here's, here's the issue. The people who don't know Jesus, they, they, if you told them, hey, what about Jesus do you really like? Oh, they've got some things they really like. How about forgiveness, justice, mercy, amen? I mean, even, even your friends and neighbors who don't know Christ, if you ask them, what is it about Jesus you appreciate? What is it about what he has done for us that you appreciate? Well, they, they want those things, but not at the expense of what? Giving their life to Christ. Are we any better? We, we want the king, and we want the kingdom, but we don't want a cross. We want, we want, we're happy to be in church where we, we have a king. We have a relationship with Christ. We are about seeing the work of the kingdom go on. But most of us don't want the burden of the cross, the burden of suffering. And that's what 
Jesus calls us to. Now, folks, I'm not, crucifixion is reserved now in many parts of the world only to reenact Good Friday. Amen? The Philippines comes to mind. I'm not suggesting the cross, but the cross is a symbol for that which calls us into a place of suffering. And suffering takes many forms. Amen? Suffering is when your partner that you, you wanted to share your life with takes a walk out the door and doesn't come back. Suffering is the prodigal, the one that you raised, the one that you took to church, the one that you prayed for, the one that you, you just did everything you knew how to be to present Jesus to that child, and that child is no, not at all interested Suffering is December runs into January, and January runs out of money. There are some people who financial suffering. There are some people who are physically suffering. There are some people who are suffering because of emotional and or mental issues. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that suffering may not be just the identification of a cross today, but it is representative of what might come into my life because I live for Jesus. I've made a decision for the kingdom. I want to live passionately following him. I want to learn to say no to myself and yes to him. And that, in the words of G.K. Chesterton, who was a colleague of C.S. Lewis, led to this great line. He said, a Christian should be like a tea bag. They're not worth much unless they're in hot water. <laughs> you know, we talk about the suffering church. Let me just ask you a question. When we talk about the suffering church in the world today, do you ever hear it referenced as the suffering church in America? You hear the suffering church in the Ukraine, the suffering church in Russia. Do you know that 95% of the churches in Russia are closed and have now become havens for some other purpose? 95%. And yet I will tell you that there is a church that's vibrantly alive in Russia that's standing against the powers that be and continuing to preach Jesus, him crucified, and coming again with life and liberty for all who believe. How do we close this? Well, there's the life of self-denial, the life of cross-bearing, but ultimately it's the life of following Jesus. Let me... Let me I'm, I'm calling on all of us today to follow Jesus passionately. Amen? Have you all caught that? <laughs> right. Let me tell you one of my favorite stories, and we'll close. Flip, flip the coin over, and I'm going to tell you how passionately Jesus is following after you. Long Island Turnpike. Anybody know? What, what, what state? Long Island Turnpike. New Jersey. There's a lady in a car, and she's driving on the Long Island Turnpike, and it's relatively late at the evening. And she begins to look up and see that behind her in her rearview mirror is someone in a, in a semi who is 
getting too close to her and honking at her and flashing lights on and off and she is beginning to get what? Scared. And so she does the smart thing and she gets off the off-ramp and then she gets on the next on-ramp thinking that somehow or another she can lose this individual. But no, that truck stays right on her tail. And so finally up ahead, she sees the lights of a service station. And she pulls into the service station. She jumps out of the car. She finds the attendant. She points at the semi-truck who is now, or the driver who has now pulled his truck into the service station parking lot. And she begins to tell the service station attendant how this man has been following her. What she doesn't know is this is the service, the, the man in the semi-truck gets out of his car, walks over to her car, opens up the back door of the car, puts his hand in the back seat, and pulls out someone who had gotten into the car ostensibly to either rob her or hurt her at some yet-to-be-determined Point. She was running from the wrong person. Amen? I don't know who wrote it. I should know. I was a literature major in undergraduate school, but some, some author coined the phrase about God that he's the hound of heaven. He relentlessly pursues us. Amen? Here's my challenge to all of us today. Will we relentlessly pursue him? Will we say no to our own desires and our own interests and our own needs and what feathers our own bed and perhaps makes us look good in the eyes of others just so we can say, yes, God, your kingdom, I live for the advancement of your kingdom and the glory it brings your name. Am I willing to go through points of suffering, whatever form that suffering takes, because I am so desperate to see people come to know Jesus? I am so desperate to have the opportunity to share about Jesus that I'm willing to put myself in harm's way because it gives me an opportunity to testify. You are aware of the fact that 11 of the 12 disciples died violent deaths. Between 162 and 312 A.D., 5 million people were martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ. Get this now. In the 20th, 20th century alone, there were more people killed for no other reason than they had said yes to Jesus than in the previous 1,900 years put together. May I suggest to you they were passionate about following Jesus. May it be said of us. Amen. Father, we are so grateful to have the safety of this place. We are grateful to have the company of the committed that call this church their home. We're so grateful for those who have been given here in this place to be under shepherds. And, Father, to work under your lordship to bring 
each of us to a place of spiritual maturity. Help us to discover the gifts that we have. Help us to discover answers to the questions we might have about our faith. We're so grateful to be about a church that's looking out at its neighborhood and saying, how can we assist these people? How can we, how can we present the gospel in such a way that will be instructive but influential as well? We are so blessed, God, to have this as our church. But I pray, my Father, that in our blessings of fellowship and of instruction, of worship and of prayer, that we would be mindful of the fact, God, there is a call upon each of our lives as individuals to follow you so that we might be seen to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you again for this day. Thank you for setting aside as the worship team comes, God, and closes us. I pray, my Father, if, if anyone here today has not yet come to a place of faith in, in Jesus, I pray this would be the acceptable time. This would be the day of salvation. If there are those here today, God, who want to recommit themselves to, to a life of lordship under the banner of heaven, I pray, my Father, that this would be a day that they would do that. And when they, Father, would come today to pray with those who would be here at the altar, I pray, my Father, too, also for the one who would come and say, I want to sell out for the kingdom of God. I don't want to simply be a fan of Jesus. I want to be a follower. May that be seen and truthful in this place today. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. All right, there'll be people up here to pray. Have a great day. Enjoy. Please avail yourself of prayer. And let's join in as we're led in our closing song.